Hello, this is Red Ready Hour. My name is Khaled. And I'm Alex. And today we have two guests. We're going to start with Ian Bogslovsky. Ian is uh, from Socialist Resurgence. He's a member of Connecticut Climate Crisis Mobilization. And we're going to talk to him about uh, an article that he wrote uh, for Earth Day. Ian, what's the <laughs> connection between COVID and the climate race? Um, well, there are many direct scientific connections. Um, like one can point to uh, our practice of agriculture, which um, pushes us deeper and deeper into uh, pristine wilderness and puts domestic livestock uh, in contact with previously uh, unknown to humans or those species uh, diseases and really facilitates the spread of those diseases. And I think there's other ways that we can get into it being similar too. I think this is uh, what we're seeing right now uh, tied in with the political economy. We're, we're seeing what the dry run of uh, you know climate collapse might look like in terms of shocks to um, our society and how how it's going to cause uh, things to break down. You talk a little bit in your article about uh, permafrost and like different ways that climate uh, climate change can contribute to the spread of new infectious diseases. Um, could you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah. Um, so they have discovered um, ancient viruses uh, in the permafrost that is thawing more and more every year um, that are basically, you know, they're, they're, they can be perfectly preserved and they can reactivate um, because viruses, um, a lot of people think of them like they're uh, like a bacteria or something like that, but they're actually far simpler. Um, they're like, they don't even really meet all of the criteria for being alive. They're, they're like much more simple. Uh, so they're, they're, they can be pretty robust. And they found one um, 30,000 years old that um, was able to, that was still active. So uh, obviously it's, it's a gamble and it's like not for sure that uh, it could be dangerous or infectious to us. But if it reactivates and just so happens that it works with our physiology in such a way, we could have a completely unknown disease or diseases on our hands. Ian, uh, I, I remember it was about, uh, was it last year or the year? It was two years ago that the UN uh, United Nations was saying we have about 12 years now, 10 years until we start to make uh, changes with uh, the uh, climate crisis. Otherwise, there'll be some uh, really bad things happening. Um, with this, with the government's reaction to COVID-19, how do you feel about what the government is doing for climate? Or do you have hopes that the government will... Uh, like, do you, what do you think is going to happen with the climate? Um, 
Well, uh, I have zero hope in what the government is going to do um, because the government of all nations, uh, more or less, um, is completely subservient to massive uh, industries which are directly contributing to both the destruction of our uh, biosphere and also the spread of of these diseases um like for instance uh you know w within our our lifetimes much of bangladesh is going to be underwater and it's going to cause a you know a refugee crisis uh and we've already seen um you know a lot of unrest in india with uh you know rising fascism with the modi regime uh the persecution and banning of of muslims so i think the um the uh political crisis the ongoing political crisis that is like late stage capitalism is is going to be heightened and worsened by um plagues of um literal disease um famine caused by the destruction of farmlands uh and extreme um seasonal fluctuations so i think it's kind of going to be a feedback loop and that's also going to be connected to the actual economy um, itself, like with more frequent recessions and uh, in depressions and and things of that nature. So if the uh, governments that we have in place currently are not going to address the climate crisis um, or uh, situations like COVID, I mean, we're already seeing that the response for working people today is totally inadequate while uh, businesses get bailouts. Um, what do what can we do uh, to respond to this? Uh, what steps do we need to take in order to um, fight climate uh, the climate crisis um, and things like uh, COVID nineteen? Well, uh, in my extremely biased perspective, um, but I think my fair perspective in judgment is that. Um, our governments will be completely incapable of of meeting these challenges because capitalism itself is not capable of meeting these challenges. So if we are to um, to mitigate or actually reverse the the damage uh, to our to our climate uh, and life itself on on this planet, um, we need uh, we need socialism. We uh, real socialism, you know, an eco socialism. Like it needs all of our energy infrastructure um, and distribution systems and production systems need to be uh, clean, renewable energy, and they need to be under public ownership. Because only when you um, put things under public ownership uh, and put them in the hands of uh, of workers will you see the end of exploitation of humanity and also the environment because we will not have the incentive to continue uh you know strip mining lithium uh out of bolivia like we or, or destabilizing bolivia's government you know for lithium <laughs> uh we we won't we won't have wars over fossil fuels um because we will be able to figure something else out we won't have a massive energy lobby that doesn't want us to solve these problems because they're making so much money off of it now.
I think maybe we should uh, talk a little bit more about um, like how a socialist society would respond to um, like climate crisis, maybe uh, the three of us. So like, I, I think, um, yeah, like, I mean, obviously, like we agree that uh, socialism is necessary, um, but maybe we could touch on some of the more controversial points Um I don't know. Ian, what do you think about um, uh, energy solutions um, like uh, nuclear energy um, versus uh, things like uh, hydroelectricity or solar panels or um, wind energy? What do you think is the most like promising path forward technologically um, in regards to, to climate change? Well, um, nuclear energy is, is pretty controversial, um, and I won't pretend to be the most knowledgeable about the, um, the merits um, or you know, the, the cons, uh, but I do know a few um, general things about it as it exists up to this point. Um, the first and foremost is that the um, the waste is so incredibly toxic, uh, not toxic. I, I mean, radioactive, as in basically will destroy your cellular structure from you know like a mile away if you're just like if it's uncontained. Um, so that is worrisome, uh, and things go wrong. Accidents happen. Um, unpredictable things happen. Uh, so you can't guarantee that it's that it's entirely safe. Um, I mean, I maybe maybe I, maybe I am wrong about that. I've heard um, like in the Climate Coalition, there's this one guy who shows up every so often, and he seems like a pretty smart guy. But his his sole motivating thing is seems to be to talk about uh, uh, molten salt reactors, molten as in liquefied salt or uh, thorium reactors, which apparently can, um, are walk away safe, their proponents say, and, um, actually can utilize, um, waste from other reactors because, you know, there's the fact that something is so radioactive, it's emitting all these, um, high energy gamma waves. It actually still has energy in it. And apparently you can run a thorium reactor off of spent fuel according to this man who's an engineer um but like i said i'm not very knowledgeable about it um what was the second part of the question i'm sorry i got sidetracked uh well i i have uh, a uh, tangent to that question which is uh we're sort of trying to imagine what uh the uh use of energy would be like in a social society uh some people if, if i might play the pig's advocate uh, so some people would will say, well, uh, there was this uh, nuclear accident that happened in in the Soviet Union. That was a social society, and they had Chernobyl. Um, is is that is that the kind of uh, uh, attitude that you would take towards nuclear energy? Like, uh, like even in social society. Those, yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. Like 
even like we're human beings and even well-engineered things uh have like unforeseen like you know like that bridge that they just like it so happened that the wind was moving over it right and it caused it to ripple like you were taking a carpet and like like uh heaving it up and down and sending a wave down it like we're 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 flawed our knowledge is not perfect so no socialism itself would not isolate us from um accidents especially uh with potentially like highly destructive um technology and i i think the other thing that's important to point out is that um how um nuclear energy itself like how bad that industry has has been and how disrespectful it has been towards um the planet already um and that's there's like political ramifications of that for instance um you know they've filled um a holy mountain for native americans with the reactive waste because they said oh it's just like a it's in the middle of the desert it's this mountain that doesn't mean anything but it was the holy site for um for indigenous people so and also um indigenous people have been um like badly exploited in the mining of uranium um so it's Gosh. definitely already done um a lot of harm uh but i don't think that is necessarily inherent to the technology um but i'm skeptical of it i think that we could utilize um solar more uh wind uh geothermal uh offshore wind um hydroelectric but again um none of these things are are perfect and uh like for instance like the army corps of engineers in 1946 um uh dammed the missouri river and flooded an entire basin uh to a displace a bunch of uh native people uh and b to create uh, a hydroelectric dam so um you know when we when we're implementing these technologies and building new infrastructure we need to take into account not only the environment but um people's sovereignty and their rights to their land yeah i i had no i i didn't think of how uranium uh was sourced like i only knew about its use on the other end and in, in iraq um but i didn't i didn't know that was actually uh in this extraction uh, it harmed uh, the indigenous peoples here uh, i do want to ask about uh about the sourcing of uh solar solar energy because what i've read thus far is that uh the mining for the minerals uh for uh for solar energy is actually uh it can itself have some uh, negative effects on the environment and i mean of course the way it's uh, it's being sourced nowadays is full of uh, violence uh, against um one example is uh, the mines in the congo and that's the limits of my of my reading but um how how do you think do you think that in a social society there'd be able there there'd be an ability to uh to source that and have the right sort of logistics and the whole question of the supply chain network do you think how 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 different do you see that well that's a that's a good question um and actually um 
what you've mentioned brings to mind another limitation with our um, current technologies um, as they as they exist, and that is that there is simply not enough lithium on in the planet, um, as far as they can tell, um, to support the transition to uh, electric cars, for example. So I think we need to actually readdress like fundamental um, uh, like flaws with uh, our infrastructure um, and how it's like administered. Um, I think a big thing would be uh, public transportation. Um, you know, people like to uh, fetishize the train systems of like various, uh, you know, countries like like China, which, you know, I won't, uh, I don't think it's neither here nor there that we talk about China as, you know, whether it's socialist, communist, imperialist, um, you know, like a deformed worker state, like we don't need to get into that. But, um, you know, we need better transportation. And if we built a high speed rail system, we would also need to take into account the impact that building the pylons and the rail itself uh, would have on the environment. So I think we need to fundamentally rethink these things, but I think we can do it. Um, and there is promising technology that's being researched, um, but there's an active um, like economic interest in, in not developing these technologies. Um, or even if there was like, they would still be, uh, you know, exploitively used and not affordable, like, you know, like a Tesla is not an affordable car. You uh, talk about environmental racism in your article, and I, we've already been um, talking about that uh, just through the conversation, but could you give a definition of environmental racism and maybe talk a little bit more about how that functions? Yes. Um, well, I can, I can try. Um, I'm... I, I'm a I'm a white man uh, from America, but my understanding of environmental racism, um, I, I think it can manifest in uh, many different ways, like, you know, such as uh, how we would treat climate refugees um, that, you know, non-white climate refugees um, that are fleeing the equatorial um, regions, like as they become unlivable, but also we can see it in our own cities where where and how things are zoned. Um, for instance, uh, you know, the area that the, that the F-35s take off from here is, uh, is poorer, uh, it's blacker and, and browner. And we see that with, um, a lot of other, um, a lot of other, uh, destructive things like the dumping of waste chemicals. Um, just the, the mere fact that Flint still doesn't have drinkable water. Uh, you know, you, you, one would think that if this happened in like Greenwich, Connecticut or something like that, that, that would have been fixed in about two months and there, you know, there would have been hell to pay. There would have been like, um, you know, like suburban, uh, like, like soccer moms, like basically like demanding to speak to the manager of the, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, it could never happen in a place like that because of the like disparity in investment and so on. Um, but yeah, I think all this just gets to the fact that like, we cannot, 
um, you know, adequately ag- address the climate without a fundamental change to our economic and social systems. Um, and that there's no, I mean, what I've gained from this conversation is that there's no technological way out. There's no, like, you know, Paris agreement into electrical cars after 20 years and then maybe uh, things get better. Um, is there anything that uh, you think that we haven't touched on? Or I guess you have another question. Well, I mean, one of the things that I'm just trying to get my head around, uh, and I still cannot understand, like, I, I, I am, uh, I, I like understanding more and more of socialist the- theory and, uh, and what a socialist society would look like. Uh, but I also want to understand why some things in capitalism are the way they are. For example, I can't understand why uh, uh, the um, in, in, in the dairy industry, uh, you, you find businesses or is it the farmers or why, why, why are uh, tons of gallons of milk being just uh, dumped? Because like they're, they're not making profit out of it and they want to get rid of it, why don't they just give it away? Yeah, um, this this is actually, this. I was hoping that we would get into this a little bit because I there's another piece that I wrote for the, the party paper that's a little more explicit in its analysis um, in its indictment of our, of our systems. And the instance with the milk um, is 100% related to um, there being a free market for milk. Um, and also, um, it's, it's, it's related to, um, to other things uh, as well, like such as the, the fact that milk does spoil rather quickly. But uh, what's happening, what, I think the, the cause of this was um, the school uh, contracts for milk uh, in the COVID crisis have not been, um, they, they've, you know, not had as many contracts for, for milk. So they've just have all the surplus milk that they need to dump because it's going to spoil. And from what I understand, there's a bit of misconception about this because they do do this like often it's like, they're just doing it more now, but it's still wasteful. Um, and it's still milk that could feed people if we had ways of distributing it. So one thing that I would say, um, why not, still send the shipments of milk to the school, have them, you know, subsidized by the state and then use the school as distribution and have, um, have kids and families come and get meals. I know that some schools have been running like as a, like a meal service because, uh, public school was the only way that certain kids, you know, impoverished kids were eating. Um, but more specifically about the economics of it, um, they, when you have a market, um, you know, libertarians like to talk about the, the law of supply and demand where, um, you know, if you have like a, like a ton of supply and not much demand, like the, the price drops off and you need to actually destroy the milk so that it is scarce enough to, to raise the price. And like, we've seen this with many different things. Uh, it's happening currently with, um, 
with eggs, they're actually slaughtering hens um, by the thousands oh because the same reason uh, eggs are not being purchased as much by schools. But one would have to think that the same amount of people, right, mouths need to be fed. It's just this specific mode of distribution um, has broken down and the market is not able to provide another one because it cares more about the price of eggs being, you know, such and such per dozen so that they can make a profit off of them. Um, and this happened in the Great Depression as well, where famously um, uh, John Steinbeck wrote about this in The Grapes of Wrath, um, where you had this agricultural surplus um, in California of, you know, many types of fruit, of all, all sorts of products of, of the earth, but because the economy was, was in crisis, um, uh, the laws of supply and demand uh, mandated that, uh, that all of this food that nobody could afford because nobody had jobs be destroyed right in front of them. So you had them dumping entire trucks of potatoes into the river and people like with nets trying to fish them out so that they could eat. And then you had them dumping cartloads of oranges and pouring kerosene on them so that people wouldn't run up and grab them because they couldn't sell them. Um, so it's it's really appalling the waste that happens um, even during normal normal times with food uh, just being thrown out instead of given to homeless shelters. Uh, that anybody who says the free market is the most efficient is just lying through their teeth or or. Uh, completely ignorant uh i was gaping uh the whole time because i cannot i i mean i'm shocked but not surprised i guess is what i want to say but all, all of this like it seems like there's just so much contempt to 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 the working class you know um all this why why not just uh just if it's too much to distribute it to the uh uh, to certain uh, schools here and there, uh, and the schools would probably redistribute it again. Why not just give it to food banks, right? Yeah, um, and that's something that could be done too. However, um, food banks, uh, there's not that many of them, um, and I think there's like increasingly less and less of them because of uh, austerity and privatization and the cutting of, um, you know, public funding for such things that the ones that exist, uh, you know, you're seeing these, these huge lines of, uh, of people trying to get basic, uh, groceries, um, where they're just not equipped for, uh, for, for meeting, uh, the, the human need in, in this way. Um, I, I'm actually reading right now, um, about the, um, the great famines in uh, throughout uh, Asia uh, and in India uh, that happened in the late 1870s that were um, a product of natural oscillations um, in in the climate, um, but because of the subjugation of of those areas to uh, colonial rule were like much, much worsened. Like, you know, there had been droughts before and bad growing seasons. And these rural communities had systems to deal with it where they would, you know, uh, distribute food uh, or, or have uh, depots or stores. But as soon as the British 
colonized India, they started dismantling this infrastructure that was made to uh, to supply humanity in, in times of need. So they just started shipping that grain and, and nobody in Europe starved, but millions and millions and millions of people in uh, throughout India were just wasting away and, and being forced to continuously work um, and given actually less food to eat than people in the death camps of Auschwitz. And people don't really talk about it it, as a man-made crisis, but it absolutely was. And I think it's, um, it's a huge indictment of, um, our, our systems and, and these systems are still in place. Like these British colonialism and imperialism is like, is what the first world is built upon. You know, it's like our, our modern marvels exist upon, a a, a ziggurat of human skulls and suffering. Uh, and I think a lot of people, uh, don't directly see that every day yeah i mean this was the normal to an extent it's it's kind of still is or at least um like people now are talking about like even even uh, governor cuomo uh was saying there's no return to normal uh what do you think is going to be the new normal uh, how how hopeful are you about the future Oh, uh, I'm incredibly hopeful, actually. Um, I think there's a lot of work that needs to be done by all of us and people who are not even involved in the movement for, uh, for socialism um, directly yet. Um, I think that um, there is things that we can look at right now that are hopeful. Um, people organizing rent strikes, um, mutual aid. Um, but we cannot depend on, on these things and we need to, um, be organized and, and mobilized and do actual strikes, um, to, to get our demands because, well, it's also difficult because it is literally a pandemic and we cannot have massive protests right now. So, you're seeing organizing, but you're also seeing like alienation. And I think uh, organizing is ultimately going to be the more powerful force. Uh, and I think things are changing. I, I don't believe we're going back to normal. I mean, I know that I'm, I'm going to be uh, like fucked up from this for a while, just uh, in how I, you know, like operate in, in the, in the world, just like how I touch door handles, how I, how I go places, what kind of considerations I make when I'm talking to people, um, you know, crossing this, like, I remember <laughs> at the beginning of all this, I was feeling like self-conscious, like if I would cross the street when somebody was walking on the same side as this, of the sidewalk as me. And, and now it's just like a thing I do without even thinking about. And I was like, I think everybody is kind of doing that now, uh, besides people who are brazenly ignoring, uh, the, the measures. And I think it's kind of traumatizing all of us in, um, in you know to a greater or lesser I extent but uh i don't see how we go back to normal i mean i i don't like uh cuomo at all but like i think that basic um statement is probably true yeah, yeah. well thank you for coming on ian um your article in Earth Day Declaration will be in the description. And uh, if you send us that other article that you uh, published for Socialist Resurgence, 
we can uh, include that as well. All right. Thank you, Ian. Thank you. we're back and right now we have with us uh, Erica Victoria. Erica is a social worker for young children and their caregivers and she focuses on trauma healing and resiliency within their, with an understanding of the ways in which system, systematic uh, trauma or systemic trauma is caused by capitalism, imperialism and racism. She's also a member of IWS, International uh, Women's Strike, United States, the Bread and Roses Collective, and Socialist Resurgence. Comrade Erica, welcome to the show. Thank you. So, uh, Erica, what is the International Women's Strike? So, the International Women's Strike um, started uh, a couple of years ago when a cross-border network of women and LGBTQI persons, gender non-conforming people, emerged um, together to plan a global day of action on March 8th, which was International Women's Day in 2017. And this, these actions took place in 50 different countries um, and stemmed from a string of preceding international events that really put them into motion. Um, so some of those events were like the 2016 strike of Polish women who were defending abortion rights, um, and the Ni Una Menos movement in Argentina, which called for national and local assemblies to organize a women's strike in response to the high rates of femicide um, that were happening there. And that quickly spread to other countries, including Brazil, Chile, Bolivia, Paraguay, El Salvador, Mexico, Turkey, Italy, and Spain. Um, and so from that point, um, this cross-border network of women continued to meet um, and connect their struggles and fight for not just reproductive justice and, and against sexual violence and discrimination, but also to strengthen the fight against capitalism, anti-working class attacks, and neoliberal policies that harm women and gender non-conforming people. So out of all of this, you know, um, different events happened in Spain in 2019, at least 6 million people responded to the national call with 350,000 uh, people coming out into the streets in Madrid and 250,000 in Barcelona, and 200,000 in uh, Zaragoza. And so this was a real uh, interconnected network of, of immigrant women, North African, Middle Eastern, and Central American refugees, caucuses of women in unions, unorganized women, fighting for uh, fighting the stresses of precarious work, and, and young women struggling around sexual violence. So it was really from this that then the United States group um, began to form in, in 2017 in response to this global call that was happening and, the, and these cross-border feminist meetings that started. Um, and the term feminist international was coined um, by the Argentinian movement to evoke the sense of urgency attached to international solidarity. Um, and that's kind of how we got to today. I can talk a little bit more about the US, uh, the IWS, which formed out of this cross-border feminist network, if that's, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So 
so basically after after this big call um a group of women uh prominent key figures in the leadership um uh feminist movement in the united states came together to really form the iws the international women's strike um as part of this international cross-border feminist movement and some of the the key figures that helped to form it were Barbara Smith, who is a black lesbian feminist and socialist. And she's played a significant role in building and sustaining black feminism in the US. She was also one of the founders of the Kumbahi River Collective. Um, Chinsia Rusa, who's a social reproduction theorist, activist, feminist, and co-author of Feminism for the 99%. Titi Bhattacharya, who's a prominent Marxist feminist and vocal advocate of Palestinian rights and boycott, divestment, and sanctions and Margaret Prescott, who's a labor organizer, civil rights activist, and advocate for black women in the US. So among others, um, so, so all of these, these women have come together uh, among many others um, to form uh, the IWS US, which has a platform that is um, really situated in, in an understanding of social reproduction theory and directly challenges neoliberal feminism um, and some of the falsities that that say that equity for women and LGBTQI folks is achievable through capitalist, imperialist political parties and neoliberal reforms. Um, so this platform has like five or six major uh, things that it focuses on, including an end to, uh, an end to gender-based violence, um, reproductive justice for all, labor rights, full social provisioning, anti-racist, anti-imperialist feminism, environmental justice for all, and ending the war, all war and occupation. Um, so that's kind of the platform that they're, they're working from and, um, it sounds uh, pretty comprehensive. Uh, but what does feminism have to do with, uh, racism, imperialism or, or the environment? Yeah. So that's a big question. Yeah. <laughs> but a lot. So, so you know, the history of past feminist movements is, is, is really wrought with failures to build true cross-border solidarity because at key moments in the history of feminism under capitalism, the movement has really, demand, has really abandoned the demands of oppressed women and instead supported openly or tacitly um, the foreign policy of bosses and, you know, filling roles domestically and internationally in the development agencies of dominant global powers. And so, and similarly, this like white liberal feminism has neglected the degree, the degree to which racism and ethno-nationalism and imperialism shape the experience of misogyny um, for the majority of women and LGBTQI persons of this world. So when you think about how feminism and classism and racism and all of these things are connected, um, we have to think about, you know, this unitary theory of oppression in which, um, and the ways in which um, the international working class has been impacted by various specific experiences of oppression based on race, nationality, gender, class, sexual orientation, and disability. Um, and that's the unitary theory of oppression? Yes. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And so something that really helped me understand this was um, Holly Lewis, she said something like, uh, a Bangladesh, a woman in Bangladesh working in a factory uh, who is straight, you know, um, might have more in common with a Mexican factory worker who's a woman and queer than the queer Mexican woman would have in common with a white queer woman in the United States. So the fundamental experience of class and the way that capitalism has structured 
um, this, you know, the, the, the way that we're living, um, that's the material basis for which we experience, experience different and varying forms of oppression. And so capitalism then systematizes race um, and it systematizes uh, gender and sex and at these um, things to, to further exploit. And so I think that's how I would say that the struggle for, for women's rights, both cis women and trans women, um, is really the struggle for the working class. And it's, it's you know, the struggle for, um, for, for all those that are suffering under capitalism. Yeah. Um, uh, so you know how... Uh... In, in in the media you'll you'll hear about uh, uh, when it comes to say the Middle East or uh, Arabs or Muslim communities uh, they'll talk about oppressed women how women are oppressed uh, because of uh, Islam or some sort of uh, uh, some sort of ancient tradition or something and in France particularly they have this debate about the hijab and it's it's such a controversy there. Uh, how do you how how do you understand the 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 problem of the French state with with the hijab, like uh, and the right wing parties there, like uh, the one with uh, Marie Le Pen? She, she you know she would say she would probably uh, present hijab as something anti feminist. How how do you read uh, this uh, debate over there? I think that that speaks directly to this this neoliberal feminism, this form of feminism um, that centers the experiences of of white cisgendered, uh, you know, um, women uh, and wealthy wealthy women, um, and so it's not thinking about the many ways that that. Uh, an experience of misogyny might be might be based on on your specific the specific ways in which you are oppressed, and so, you know, for folks that are um, saying that the hijab is is anti-feminist, you know, women have the feminism is about the the right for for all people to determine to self-determine um, and make their own choices about about how they want to live their lives, and so. Um, for for women that are wearing hijab, that is um, their self determination, and so to to say this is um, anti feminist is to really be centering the experiences of of white liberal neoliberal feminism. Wow, uh, I also know uh, in in Iraq and Afghanistan, like there was this history of uh, white feminists running stories about about them being oppressed and, uh, and needing to be saved uh, by, by war. Uh, what, what would be the uh, international women's uh, strike response to, to that? Are you, um, can you ask the question? I'm sorry, can you ask the question again? Uh, it's probably something you've already answered, <laughs> though. <laughs> so it's like, uh, this is like, um, you know how the the reasoning that was played for for going into Iraq and Afghan, uh, Af- Afghanistan, and on top of uh, uh, on top of so many other reasons, was that oh, women there are oppressed. Uh, we need to go and uh, save those women and uh, teach them democracy or 
uh, or, or some sort, which are still, I think, being played around. Um, so uh, I, I think this is a question that you already answered with uh, new, new liberal uh, f- feminism, um, because it needs to generate profit or something. Um, yeah, no, I think yeah. that I think that the that war and I- imperialism are are um, certainly tied into this. I mean, yes, I think that um, that certainly neoliberalism um, and and all of that contributed to the way in which in which um, they were using that as propaganda, right? That we need to liberate um, when we know that is that is propaganda. For, for the U.S. military-industrial com- complex and, and for imperialism. So um, to try to, to drive wedges between women and gender nonconforming people by saying, um, well, well, if you care about, about women, then you'll care about liberating women. That's, you know, a lot of, of um, hateful, violent things have been done in the name of, of liberating, you know, um, of liberation and when really it's just, it's actually just like, again, the guys of the U S military industrial complex. So, um, I guess that's what I would say to that. Um, I know in, in Canada, uh, there's this ongoing, uh, issue of indigenous women, uh, disappearing. Uh, and I remember reading a story once about uh, one of the communities. They were they would be uh, hanging uh, red cloths for uh, every woman that disappeared. Uh, are you familiar with that that story? Yes, um, not that specific story, but I have heard about about this issue, and I think that um, certainly within the IWS US platform, there is this understanding that. Um, we need to understand how white supremacy and colonialism um, have really impacted uh, the ways, have targeted black and brown and indigenous and native women and girls. Um, and, and native women and girls um, have been exploited for and, and racialized and exploited for their gender by, by systems of, of capitalism. And so um, any, any organizing of, of a, a cross-border feminist movement would have to um, centralize the indigenous women and girls who are murdered or missing um, because um, the rights of indigenous nations um, is is paramount to to this to the uh, realization of a, of a cross-border feminist movement uh, I, I want to ask you about uh, the um, the perhaps what what role do you think? Uh, cisgendered males are the the type that are sort of the dominant type, right? Uh, what what role do you think uh, they should have to be uh, allies or better yet uh, comrades in in the struggle for 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 this liberation? I think that grounding themselves in an understanding of, of um, the ways in which all of these issues are interconnected and that um, to be anti-capitalist, you must be, uh, you know, a, a cross-border feminist. And so understanding the, um, and everything there is to, to read from, from Black feminists, um, from you know, people who have written on unitary theory, 
And then beyond that, really taking um, the information in and putting it into praxis. So um, supporting and advocating for for the rights of women and gender nonconforming people every every chance they get and using their privilege to do so. You know, and also recognizing that that um, you know our struggles we can't we can't be free until we're all free. And so any sort of of you know so I'm thinking of our comrades that are that are white cisgendered males. Um, they are to have to achieve the the vision they want for for a socialist future. It's going to have to be a cross border feminist future, anti racist future. Um, and so really grounding, grounding all of ourselves in, in the knowledge of, of black feminists um, and indigenous feminists and, and, and the, the history of those movements and, and understanding their analysis and, and what we can do to better be, uh, to be better allies is, is paramount, I think. Do you foresee a, a surrogacy strike? A surrogacy strike? What do you mean by that? Like uh, no children until uh, until liberation is. <laughs> no, I don't no. see that. I think that <laughs> I think that women and gender nonconforming people and we should all <laughs> um, maintain the right to self determine when and when we have children, um, when and if we have children. But uh, what? See that. Yeah. What? Um, what future projects uh, is the international uh, women's strike going to have uh, in the near future or or in the far future? So I think what I would, I think what, I mean, I'll talk a little bit about what's going on right now. So in the past couple of weeks, um, this same group that had formed um, over the past several years out of Chile and Argentina and Italy, um, and, and all over the world um, came back together to address the pandemic. And so um, basically um, the organizing efforts of, of women and gender nonconforming workers around the world developed again um, into this, into these meetings about the cross-border feminist manifesto emerged from the pandemic together and changed the system. So I think I spoke to this a little bit, but it was written, you know, by 50 women and LGBTQI folks from 20 countries, including Ecuador, Uruguay, Chile, Argentina, Bolivia, Mexico, United States, Italy, France, and Kurdistan. Um, I was part of the IWSUS um, group that that was on these cross-border feminist calls and meetings and helped to create this manifesto, which also comes with a call to action for May Day, which I'll talk about in a little bit. Um, but this manifesto and call to action for May Day have since been translated into six languages and we're waiting for several more translations to be complete. Um, and I think that this document is, is pretty critical and marks an important moment in, in the cross-border feminist movement towards global solidarity of the working class. It's a pretty extensive document that like really, really outlines the ways in which um, capitalism and neoliberalism have created this crisis and continue to systematically exploit the most vulnerable, namely working class women and gender nonconforming people who are essential workers, people of color, women. Um, and so I think uh, really what we're going to be doing is, is trying to get as many people as possible to sign on to this manifesto and support. Um, and I wanted to, I wanted to ask you, Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. No, sorry. Go ahead. 
Oh, I was just going to say, and then with it is this call to action for May Day. There's going to be like a, a global Casa Lalasso, which is like the pot banging so that every hour in every, everywhere around the world on the hour, there will be noise being made. Um, and then there will be um, a video being made of women all over the world reading sentences from the manifesto. But really it goes beyond just just May Day. It's a, it's a call for May Day, but also they're saying organize in your local communities, connect the issues of of the workers' struggle to the women's movement and and to the cross-border struggles that we have together, um, and and take this beyond May Day and beyond this manifesto to really to really engage uh, women and gender non-conforming workers all over the world in in working class struggle against capitalism and imperialism. Uh, and the, the, go ahead, yeah. The, the noise is is going to be with uh, with a pan, or is it going to yeah. be honking with, with okay? <laughs> Yeah, but I mean, it can also be, you know, honking horns, whatever, whatever. It's just, you know, I think it's it. the call is really for a mobilization, right? It's a call to mobilization. And while we don't have the capacity at this point, especially in the United States where we, you know, austerity measures and a weakening, the weakened labor uh, movement and, and all sorts of things make it very difficult to organize a general strike. Um, but um, we have to mobilize to get there. And the way we mobilize to get there is to really bring attention to to May Day and beyond, and to how the the working class struggle is 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 a feminist cross border struggle. Uh, you, you say it was uh, this manifesto was written by uh, f- fifty women from uh, fifty different countries. What was the process of writing it like? Oh my goodness, it was so intense. Um, very very long long phone calls that were translated in English and Spanish. They were predominantly in Spanish, and then there's some English translation. Um, and the phone calls sometimes were three hours long and, and a lot, a lot of, uh, coordination went into it. Um, and it was really special. It was actually really special. And, um, to see, to see women, um, and gender nonconforming folks really coming together from all over the world to address the ways in which, um, capitalism is impacting us and the ways in which this pandemic, um, specifically impacts, impacts us. Um, and so it was it was quite inspirational to be part of. And I think um, I'm really excited to see where it goes next with this call for May Day and beyond and and all of the work that that all of us are doing. There was a webinar today um, uh, that had uh, folks on from Argentina and Chile and Italy, as well as three members of IWS US and um, a member of Unidad Latina in Connecticut. And it was a really uh, powerful um, webinar. And uh, tomorrow there'll be the teach-in to, to learn more about how people in Vermont can get involved with IWSUS, as well as how to learn about actions that were, that were um, involved with on May 1st, um, such as the migrant justice car rally that's in support of essential workers. So um, I think more generally, IWSUS's hope is to grow, right? And that there'll be chapters in every state um, and city and that um, revolutionary women and gender nonconforming people will be will be um, helping to kind of lead uh, the direction of, of where it goes and um, strengthen the working class movement. And, and so the, uh, mainly everybody communicated either in English or Spanish, meaning that uh, anybody from a non-English or non-Spanish country will have uh, a command of either one of these two languages, right? 
Yeah, I mean, yeah. <laughs> I mean, there were some people who definitely had more than two languages and and were fluent in more than two languages on the call. Um, so yes, <laughs> you know, I mean, the like I said, the manifesto and the declaration have been translated into six different languages already, and we're working on translations for Arabic and Farsi um, right now, and I think two other languages. Um, so eventually, it'll be translated into nine or ten different languages. Wow. Um, and that's how uh, that's how we become international. Yes. Uh, uh, how can people find more information about the uh, IWS? Um, you can go to our Facebook page, um, the IWS US Facebook page. Um, the website is getting rebooted sometime this week, um, so that's like the best and easiest way to to get in touch and to get involved. And if you're local and in Vermont. You can certainly contact me and we can talk about how to this this Vermont chapter is brand new and just forming of the IWS. Um, and we can also talk about how to tap into the to the U.S. group um, overall, as well as the international group. And how do you prefer that um, people who are interested in organizing with the IWS, uh, how would you prefer that they contact you? They can contact me. Um, at <laughs> i'm trying to think they the face, facebook page yeah what'd you say the facebook page well yeah i mean if you contact on the iws us facebook page myself and some other people administer it so so it'll be that's one way you can definitely contact me and i'll see it all right uh what well, how hopeful are you uh about the um about, about the strike especially in the face of like this is, I understand that this is a, an even harder time where, uh, where people are having to, to face with horrific things like domestic violence and, and uh, more uh, legal restrictions on, uh, on abortion and, and such. How hurtful do you feel about this uh, special crisis that we're going through? Yeah, no, that's, I, I think... I think I see what you're saying. Um, yes. So one of the one of the hashtags that they're using right now for the for the cross border feminist network is the virus is capitalism, right? And so this pandemic is just exposing um, the ways in which the crisis has been caused by capitalism and the ways in which capitalism cannot respond respond to this crisis. And actually, only further uses and exploits people um, that are that are always exploited under capitalism. So, um, this pandemic is is making it very precarious um, for for those folks that are already in precarious situations. You know, um, so for example, persons in persons in Gaza have been under militarized lockdown and occupation for nearly two decades, um, and the struggle for Palestinian liberation against Israeli occupation is only made further visceral by this pandemic in which Palestinian COVID testing sites are being shut down. Palestinians are continuing to be in prison during the crisis and persons living in Gaza continue to be denied, denied medical care and supplies. Um, so we can't go back to, so in the, in the cross-border manifesto, it says we, we can't go back to normality because normality was the problem. Um, and that just really says it, how the crisis of the pandemic reveals and intensifies gender and racially based violence and the hierarchies and structural roots of oppression, exploitation and inequality of, of colonial capitalist patriarchy. 
Um, so yes, this this can be seen in the in the increasing rates of femicide and and domestic violence and violence against LGBTQI persons all over the world um, since this pandemic began. And um, stay at home orders in the context of domestic violence can be life threatening. Um, when you think about the high rates of COVID in prisons, jails, and detention facilities, um, when we know the majority of prisoners in the U.S. and around the world are people of color, it highlights the structural inequalities of racism, classism, and the ways in which these inequalities manifest in the prison industrial complex um, during this pandemic, but before that as well. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, there's so much to say. I mean, you could think about the the sexual and reproductive rights of women, um, such as in Texas and Alabama, where abortion was just outlawed during the pandemic. Um, you can, I mean, when you think about the racial disparity, Black and Indigenous and Latino populations in the U.S. are dying and testing at higher rates for COVID. And we know this is due to structural, racial, and class inequalities um, that put people of color more at risk in their day-to-day -day lives. Um, so in this way, we can see that capitalism and racism are public health crises which is only made worse during this, this global pandemic. Um, so while, you know, while coronavirus virus is affecting us all, the effects of this pandemic are differentiated based on your race, class, gender, sexual orientation, documentation, status, et cetera. Um, and that's why we need a, this pandemic requires a, a cross-border feminist response, one that addresses the increasing rates of femicide, domestic violence, violence against women, indigenous communities, people of color, and LGBTQI people, both during this pandemic and after. Wow. Uh, one last question. Um, do you know, you know the, the, the song El, El Violador Eres Tu? Uh, yes. Yes. Yeah. Is it, um, does it have anything to do with the IWS? Yes. Yeah. Well, so IWS is, the, is what the US group is called. But yes, um, the Chile group, uh, which I think is called Ni Uno Menos, um, was involved with that. Yeah, so some of the comrades on the cross-border feminist uh, call are Chilean and were definitely involved with the organization of that directly. Um, so it's powerful. That That's a powerful uh, chant song that was made and it directly connects sexual violence to state violence and sexual violence to capitalism, which is what we need to understand that these things are, are connected um, as capitalism systematizes sexual violence. Um, so I think that, uh, that yeah, if, if folks have heard of that, then definitely um, uh, these, some of our comrades who helped write this document are part of that as well. Yeah, I, I, it certainly came across my mind uh, when, I, when I viewed the, uh, the English version of the Feminist Manifesto, I was trying to find the Arabic one, but it certainly crossed my mind uh, when they were uh, singing uh, El Estado Oppressor, Esta Mucho Violador. Uh, I'm, yes. probably, I'm probably butchering the Spanish there. But... No, that was, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, Camarerica, thank you so much for being on the show. Of course, thank you so much. You've been listening to Red Ready Hour with Alex and myself, Khaled. For more material like this, check out our handle on Twitter at Red Ready Hour or visit our website, bredandrosescollective.com. Until the next time, solidarity. <laughs> <laughs>